This is not your usual law firm podcast. It's not about analyzing new law, old law, or in the works law. In this podcast, we aim to challenge the status quo, provoke thought, and uncover new ways of thinking. We're about talking to leaders of industry on how they've tackled problems, problems you may have in common, and sharing the solution. We want organizations to think differently, act with agility, and hold back preconceived ideas to entertain a new one. Welcome to Hold That Thought. The spread of misinformation and disinformation has affected our ability to improve public health, address climate change, maintain a stable democracy, and more. Misinformation is false or inaccurate information. It's getting the facts wrong. Disinformation is false information which is deliberately intended to mislead. Disinformation is the most damaging to our society, so why are we seeing more of it? In collaboration with the Institute of Directors, in this episode, Denton's partner Linda Clark talks to Dame Joe Brosnan on why rebuilding trust is key to societal stability and how business leaders can build unity in a climate of distrust. Kia ora tato. Joining me for this episode of Hold That Thought is Dame Joe Brosnan, Company Director and Leadership Advisor. Dame Joe is currently Chair of Maritime New Zealand and Harrison. She's founder of Leadership New Zealand, and she has a long history of leading organisations in local government, education, infrastructure, energy, and much more. And she has what I would describe as a superpower of bringing people together, bringing out the best in people, even when they might disagree. And we'll talk a little bit about that shortly. It makes her, of course, the perfect guest to talk about today's topic, which is disinformation and misinformation, and whether it is getting in the way of good decision-making and resolving some of New Zealand's trickiest problems. I'm Linda Clark. I'm one of the partners at Denton's. Hi, Joe. Kia ora. Let's define misinformation and disinformation. What do, what do we mean when we talk about this? So misinformation is obviously false information but shared without necessarily malicious motives. But disinformation is probably the one that we're most concerned about here, which is verifiably false information is actually created and spread with the intent to deceive. So I think it's something we've really become very aware of over the last few years in particular, but where social media and more recently AI actually are just showing us what a threat it can be. What made you start thinking about this? I actually was, I attended an IOD conference about six months ago and with a presentation from the misinformation or disinformation project and suddenly all began to fit into place really of things that I'd observed and been concerned about. And like everybody in New Zealand, I'd watched the parliamentary protests last year and pondered on what was behind them? How was it that such a disparate group of people with their different concerns could gather together in such angst and with such terrible outcomes, really, for, for this country? And I began to want to know more. And do you have an idea on where this comes from? Like, what is behind it? In terms of, I mean, I think it's it's hard to say exactly what's behind it, but it's fair to say that there are a lot of motives behind wanting to manipulate information. And I think we even see it on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, even the current election process, I sit and watch 
politician vows on different issues and virtually everyone I can unpick aspects of what they're presenting as facts to bits and basically say that's actually not the facts that this issue should be being discussed on. So there tend, tends to be some freedom with the way in which facts are used in our environment. And it's now been exacerbated by social media and, as I say, by AI, which is really, I think, put it on steroids. To the point that I think it is something that threatens our whole social fabric. I think it's become something that we should be very, very concerned about. Come to that in a moment. You mentioned the protests at Parliament. There's no question is that there was something about COVID and in the immediate, well, not the aftermath, because there the still is COVID, but in the aftermath of the first phase of that pandemic, there was that was some kind of trigger for people to, if you like, question whether there is such a thing as yes, a Yes, and I think what I've since learned, and that's what I learned earlier this year, that that the reason that there was a highly disparate group of people, each of whom no doubt was pretty passionate about their cause and why they were there, was this bridging between communities that was going on in the background on social media and actually somehow creating a common cause out of a whole lot of disparate concerns and issues. So, you know, I knew of people there that were very passionate about their beliefs, particularly around COVID vaccinations, and I think could be respected that that was their right, but that was being manipulated through social media in all sorts of different ways and with overseas impact as well. So at that stage, you've lost hold of the opportunity to have the conversation. And the perverse thing, I suppose, out of all of that is that during the first phase of COVID in particular, you know, as a country, New Zealand decision makers had never been probably never been more reliant on scientists and experts, if you will, I would like to say neutral experts. In the wake of that, that whole concept of whether you could be an expert has become really moot. I, I find this really surprising, right? In my lifetime, that's really turned on its head that, that there are these facts that we've lived with that for a, a whole range of reasons, a whole lot of people now can kind of just turn that completely upside yeah, down. I've pondered on that, but I think what happened was that in the process of use of the science, which really said we have to get the largest part of the population to be vaccinated, essentially save the lives we want to save, there was a group who, for whatever reason, chose to sit outside that. And they were the ones who it didn't suit them, that the facts of science didn't suit them or they didn't agree with them. And it was it was that fact, and that there was so much emotion within those that group, and there was so much division from the rest, that they were actually divided and totally separated and pushed outside our normal society, whether that was work or community or whatever. At that point, then I think it was a bit like setting off a fuse. Yeah. There's a connection here between public trust or trust in public institutions and the vulnerability of populations to be manipulated, if you like, by, by some of the disinformation players. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the Edelman Trust Barometer. So for those of you watching or listening, the Edelman 
trust barometer. It's, a, it's published internationally and it measures trust and what drives trust. And this year, the New Zealand measure of that uh, had some pretty disturbing results. So 58% distrust business, 51% distrust government, 55% distrust NGOs, and 41% distrust media. What do you I make think of that? What, we've, what we're dealing with here are the impacts of polarisation, of the fact that our society is becoming more and more polarised for a lot of reasons. Economic anxieties, I think, are obviously a one, and I think Edelman mentions that. They also mention the class divide as a result of that, you know, the huge inequalities in society, and they're growing and they're getting worse. And so the, I think the countries that are most divided in that and have the least trust are actually countries like the US where, you know, that division is getting, is getting very large. Traditionally, um, of course, New Zealanders don't like to think of themselves in that way, right? That's not how we, we think of our country. But, but the reality is we're becoming more and more divided. And as long as we allow that to happen, I think we're going to actually have elements of society who feel left out and who therefore don't see people as being trustworthy in terms of promising anything to improve their future. I'll give you a bit of a story about that. I was um, chair of Kaitokara Education Trust, which we set up up north to put computers into schools, low decile schools. And I mean, the the principals up there do a remarkable job and the and the teachers were doing an incredible job in terms of actually upskilling the children. But in terms of dealing with the principals at times, it was really hard to, to try and actually have a conversation about how we could help. And I said to one of the principals, who I've got huge time for, I said, "What? just tell me what the problem is here. I don't understand why we can't sit down and work this through together. And she said, because... You were dealing with generations of lack of trust. You know, these people, the kids we work with have been the forgotten for generations. They're, they're now in some third generation, fourth generation, sometimes unemployment. You know, homes that are unhealthy, households that are really, really struggling. And from the principal's point of view, we've tried to battle for these kids. And it's very hard to trust those that we work with because it just haven't had the promises delivered on. So that's where you get the divide. And I'm not saying that everyone who's ever been involved around that isn't doing their best. But if we don't actually really get down to the core of, of the, the problem and look at how we rebuild trust, then I think these issues are going to get worse, not better. So you and I are having this conversation in the, in the middle of an election campaign politicians are not talking about this, right? This is not no, on the agenda. I, I, for many years, I've, I've said I felt there needed to be a better system than democracy, but, <laughs> and I was told it's the only one. Um, it's not it, the, the division that you're seeing, the system of, of essentially, you know, right and I'm right, they're wrong, et cetera. The, the manipulation of information, et cetera, is, is not, I think, going to lead the best outcome, whoever wins. I would always promote a model of leadership that is essentially collaborative leadership, where 
we all sit down and work it through together. And of course, when I was involved with local government, we could actually do that because we didn't have this party division uh, and so on. So you could find the environment in which you could actually do that. And I'll give you an example that I'm chair of Maritime New Zealand and my CE chairs support health and safety leadership group. It's totally tripartite. It's port, stevedore and companies, unions, port industry association, and the government, Maritime New Zealand and WorkSafe, all working together and just pushing through all sorts of issues, get, get, arriving at really collaborative solutions, sharing information and putting the agreed processes into place. I mean, it's they, they talk about he, he waka ekanoa, you know, working, working together and it together. I think that's how we need to look at doing things. I look, uh, you know, we need to, it's so much quicker. If you, once you establish trust and share information and so on and build some wisdom and find a common purpose, you can build things so quickly. So why do others find it either this either a scary concept or something that they think is either going to be is going to get bogged down, it's going to be either bureaucratic, slower. I mean, I, I was I'm uh, I was going to come to this later in the conversation, but but we've got here now, and I I wanted to mention that. So I attended a dinner that Joe organised earlier this year. It was one of the best events, sort of corporate events I've I've been to in, in so long. I've I've been telling people about it for the rest of the year because what you managed to do at that dinner was bring together a diverse group of people that didn't have a lot in common, had very different views asked us all to identify what we thought were the big challenges facing New Zealand, allowed us the space to have smaller conversations about that. We started the evening disagreeing and and looking across the table thinking, how on earth can you think that? We ended the evening with a real constructive collegiality. Now, how do you do that well, on a bigger scale? Well, I guess scale? I've pondered on that for the last 20, 25 years, and which is why we set up Leadership New Zealand. Because I think, ultimately, the only way to deal with issues like disinformation is to, in fact, come together as people. We need to realise that, in fact, that, you know, organisations are only people working together for common purpose communities are people working together and you've got to do that and then build enough respect to be able to then have conversation and I teach this also at Institute of Directors and when I teach leadership in the boardroom we teach how you in fact need to come together socialize and then learn to truly listen and and then you'll start to be able to collectively think and you've got to go beyond the talk back You've got to go to listening truly for difference in terms of head, and you've got to go to listening with empathy, which is heart. If we can learn to have conversations, it's the only way we'll get change. It's and it's much faster. If you build trust, if you build, if you socialize, you build trust, you develop respect and, and empathy, you can have those conversations. But you have to want to do it. You have to want to do it. You have to see that it's it's a better way forward than division and it's a better way forward than debate. Debate is, I believe, you know, you disagree, I agree, et cetera. We're going to arrive at a space, ideally, that we have a winner or a loser. In conversation and dialogue, you arrive at a place that you all have a solution and that's different. 
and then you know misinformation's got no place in there you actually clear that through as you go so the challenge for business so let's bring this back to business the challenge for business in the current environment right is they're operating in we are operating our businesses in this environment where people are quick to judge quick to polarize the kind of collegial discussion and the, the empathetic listening that you're talking about is hard to find often in the public domain, at least, and yet businesses operate in the public domain. So firstly, why do businesses need to care about this? And then how do they go about All right, well, engaging? for a start, I think businesses have got an awful lot to lose <laughs> if, if, they, if they lose so, their social license to actually operate. And if they discover that, I mean, they've got a lot to lose in terms of, you know, both financially in terms of their brand being undermined, et cetera. I think in terms of why they're trusted, because I did ponder on that. I pondered on why a business is trusted far more than others. And I did notice not-for-profits trusted, but I think mm. they see businesses as more efficient at being able to then deal with you know, sort of making sure that that misinformation and and disinformation are dealt with. I th and I thought about it and I thought, first of all, they they must have that social license to operate. Most of them are well aware of that. They do actively protect their brands and they operate under values. So they do have values. Most of them are very clear about that. They're very wary about the social capital that they rely on around them in terms of their communities and so on. And they're wary about eroding that. And they're they're regulated. And for a, for an environment that right now is talking about less red tape and so on, actually, regulation can be an incredibly powerful force for good, particularly if you work with the regulators. And so, again, an example, I think, if you look at the survey of banks and the subsequent in Australia and then the subsequent FMA Reserve Bank survey, and I think it was 218, what they essentially identified was that customers were not being properly treated. And they required, they identified that there was a need for boards to get actively involved. They said there's a widespread sense of complacency, a reactive stance to dealing with risks. They felt boards weren't actively involved in hearing about what happened basically out at on the coalface and they were far too collegial and collaborative and not really, you know, approaching and getting active about these issues. And so as a result of that, there was a real awareness that organisations such as banks in particular need to care about what's happening. And of course, banks in particular have been very much affected by this whole area of misinformation and disinformation. I mean, I think in another example, banks and any business is forced to make sure that for, for issues such as climate change and so on, which they are expected to be dealing with, even by the information coming through the survey, that they must be actually being honest and presenting information that can be properly verified. It's, you know, the regulators are forcing them really to make sure that not only do they have a good story, but they can prove their good story. So I think there are lots of issues at stake. I think it's a good thing that at least this one element of our society that they're considered to have a degree of trust in them. 
It was interesting on the on the trust survey that when individuals thought that they did trust their employer, when in terms of where they where they trusted getting information from, they didn't trust getting information from the media um, or social media particularly, and no surprises there. But they did trust information from their employer, which I I guess I think I suppose I was a little bit surprised by that. But also you can see that imposes another obligation on employers, doesn't it? I think it, in uh, most businesses, particularly bigger businesses, have um, good checks and balances now in their organisations. Uh, you know, they're expected to meet certain expectations. And if they don't, then their people walk. I mean, it's, you know, the, 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 mm. the workforce today doesn't stay 40 years and put up with an environment that they don't agree with. So I do think, you know, they're expected to walk their talk, live their values, et cetera. So uh, I think that's an important part of it. You've mentioned a couple of times earlier on in this conversation, social media. And for businesses, that's kind of a mixed blessing, isn't it? Because every every business now has a Facebook page or a website or a social media strategy. You know, they might engage on you know Facebook pages or Instagram or whatever it is, depending on the business. But at the same time, we all know, even those of us that use social media a lot, we all know it's a toxic marketplace, right? But you yeah. can't be a business and not be engaged in it. Yes, and I don't know. I mean, I you know there's been so much talk about how you control social media, <laughs> but, and I I know the studies go on, but yeah, the reality is that people seem to feel they can become an incredibly toxic individual in social media in a way that one might assume they would never in the street or in the pub or at the dinner table. And I think the place that that most worries me, I mean, I think it worries me generally, but where it most worries me is for our young people. And up until about the mid-20s, your frontal cortex is not properly developed. And so young people also don't really have the ability to be able to disseminate what is good information, what's not, you know, what's really a, a good decision to make about what they're reading. They get bullied, they get, you know, I mean, there's some terrible examples just recently of AI being used to, to do terrible things for young people doing to each other. And and I think there's, it's contributed to our problems around youth mental health and youth suicide. I do think that social media has been a huge power for good and connection, but it also has huge, huge threats. So quite interesting on that matter of youth, because, you know, I mean, I've got two young adult sons and I mean, they would say that they think that older New Zealanders or older people are just as susceptible, particularly to AI, but also to misinformation on social media. Because if you've grown up believing, you know, you picked up the paper, what you read in the paper in the morning over breakfast, you could, you know, was the truth. Then for some older readers of social media, you know, my kids would say they don't have the same you yeah, know, bullshit I think that's detector. Right. And I think you hear a lot about these older people, you know, who particularly around being persuaded to give up all sorts of, lots of money and transfer it offshore and so on, because I think they've been used to dealing in an environment that they could trust. And yeah. so they don't turn on, to, they, they don't see the difference between what is a fake, perhaps, email and what's not, or fake social media posting or a fake website for that matter. So, yeah, I think that's right. 
I think we all need to be educated in terms of what to look out for. So lastly, because, you know, thinking back on your role as a, you know, as a leader of leaders, what is the role of leaders when we're dealing with all of the things that we've been talking about in this conversation and particularly coming back to our themes of, of misinformation in particular? What, what is the role of business Number leaders? Number one, we have to care about trust in our, both in our organisations and in our society. And we need to be very focused and clear on what we're doing to build that. So in our organisations, obviously, you know, we need to make sure we've got values that guide our behaviours. And I mean, those values that should include things such as social inclusion and equity and justice, diversity, community, cohesion, because if we don't have those, then we're going to get a very divided society, which is only going to continue to break, really, which is, I think, what's happening. I don't remember it being like this in my lifetime. And we also have to have to care that the existing inequalities that sit outside our organisations, whether that's educational health or ethnicity or whatever, that they actually are also our concern, that the workplace now, a business, is a part of the community around us and that, in fact, we have leaders of business need to be concerned about more than just the success of the business. If they don't care about their stakeholders, their community, their employees, they're not going to build the trust that they need and they're not going to have the business success they need. So I think you need to be more than just know how to make good widgets and generate good dollars on the bottom line. You've got to do a whole lot more than that. It's a challenging job, but that's a good place to stop. Dame Joe, thank, thank you, you very much.